Acts chapter 13. We have more of this text to read. I think I'll read that as we work through some of the points. So you'll hear the rest of the text, but you've heard the story to set the context. And I trust we can learn from this first record of a sermon from the Apostle Paul. We've heard much that he taught in the sense of the action of teaching and preaching, but now for the first time, Luke records a portion of his sermon. We sang, I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation. That's the story that Luke is recording in the book of Acts. Witnesses are sharing the good news. It must be our story as well telling the old story of a promise made, a Savior to come, and a promise kept. That Savior's name is Jesus. Today, from this text, this record of Saul's, Paul's sermon, I want us to answer this question, what does it mean to tell the gospel story? If we love to tell the story, what does that look like? What do we mean when we say we are telling this old, old story? Our text begins with Paul being invited to speak. He visits the synagogue, as they always do in a new city. The scriptures are read, you see there, the law and the prophets. And then, recognizing these guests, probably knowing they were from Jerusalem, had traveled a long way, invite them to speak regarding these Old Testament scriptures. How he tells the gospel story is by its example instructive for us. Not that you would be sitting, per se, in a religious gathering, speaking publicly, but the fact that in an open conversation about religious things, Saul could just kind of dive into a summary of the story of the Bible. Perhaps for those who knew something of Judaism and perhaps for many of the Gentiles who did not. For us, much of what was read, that history of the Old Testament is familiar. But I want us to recognize that this is part of telling this old, old story. The gospel story. And so what we see first in telling the gospel story, if we're learning from Paul, is that we must know the Old Testament map that leads to Jesus. We should know the Old Testament. Oh, I'm not saying you're going to win the trivia contest from all the trick questions and all the details that are there. But at the very least, you have a working knowledge of what the Old Testament is there for. Beginning of the year, we surveyed the scriptures. And I reminded you that that was from a class I had in college 30, I don't even know, 40 years ago? I don't even remember. But I remember that class as really the first time I, I, I had the big picture in my head of what this Bible is all about. And it's interesting that we come to Acts 13, and as Paul stands to speak, he starts visiting Old Testament highlights 
that are a reminder that that Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus Christ. Paul begins his summary of the gospel story by telling us in verse 17 that the God of Israel chose our fathers. You could go back to Genesis and read of God calling Abraham, reaffirming that call to Isaac and to Jacob. And there in the Old Testament, we were beginning to learn the story of a covenant initiating and a covenant keeping God. This God who bases his acts on his own faithfulness. Paul moves on quickly to the story of Egypt. The rescue that occurs. And it's reminding these people, and we're reminded today, that if we're going to summarize the gospel story, we're talking about a faithful covenant-keeping God, and we're talking about a God who specializes in rescue. He is a redeeming, saving God. Rescuing his people from their bondage. But the story continues. Verse 18, he led them through the wilderness. And after destroying the nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them that land as their inheritance. We should know this Old Testament map that leads to Jesus involves chapters in the story that talk about a coming inheritance, a coming rest for the people of God. You remember our study through 1 Peter. We're pilgrims. We're on this journey, and we are anchored by our hope in an inheritance that cannot fade away. The old story of the gospel nestled away in these Old Testament narrative stories that are telling us to be looking for something. Be looking for a promise to be kept about a son that would be given. Be looking for one who would be a rescuer. Be looking for one who would deliver on God's promise of rest and inheritance. Verses 20 to 21. God gave them priests, gave them prophets. He gave them kings. All these stories foreshadowing a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice to come a perfect prophet full of grace and truth, a perfect king who would reign absolutely and righteously. All of that Old Testament, the kings and the chronicles, I know those, those seem like ancient stories and maybe in your mind you almost think medieval, forgetting that it's thousands of years before that. And yet all those stories are reminding us that we're longing for something yet to come. It sounds so good when a good king takes the throne and, and we're told that David ruled for 40 years and there was rest in the land. But we also know that story doesn't last. And that rest goes away. The people fail. The enemies overwhelm them. They're taken captive. And it's a roller coaster ride. And we get off that roller coaster about at Malachi, the close of the Old Testament, and we think, whew, I'm glad that's over. We're ready for some stability. We're longing for a perfect king and a perfect kingdom. 
Verse 22, God promises King David a son to rule on the throne forever. And we think that promise is fulfilled in Solomon, the wisest king that would ever rule in Israel. But we quickly learn Solomon's not the fulfillment of that promise. There's another son that would be born. A son would be born, that child would be given to us. The government would be on his shoulders. In other words, he would be the one able to sustain the weight of a promise, not of just a 40-year kingdom like Solomon had, but of a forever kingdom. That child promise would be able to bear that kind of weight. And he would be, for us, a wonderful counselor. He would demonstrate the mighty hand of God in salvation. He would be a prince of peace, both now and ultimately forever. The promised son. Saul highlights that promise to David so that we would know in the Old Testament story, in that map, we are going somewhere. We're heading for something. We're heading for someone. Verses 23 and 24, John the Baptist is introduced to us in in Paul's sermon as this one who would prepare the way for that promised Messiah. Look at verse 23. Note these words, God has brought a Savior. God has brought Jesus. God has brought as he promised. There's a lot in that verse. Kind of wrapping up Paul's Old Testament introduction. We dropped Claire off at college, and I think one of her classes is Old Testament introduction. Didn't want to break it to her that I was going to mention that in my sermon, and and Paul does it in like two minutes. She's going to sit through a whole semester learning that all of these stories are designed for a purpose. They're leading us somewhere. It's a map that leads us to Jesus. We will be reminded, having read the Old Testament, of what Paul says there in verse 23, God has brought all of this to fulfillment in Jesus. I wonder if when Luke wrote this account of Paul's message, sitting there in the back row, perhaps, jotting his notes down by inspiration of the Spirit, if he would have remembered when he had written in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, back in those events of the day of the resurrection when Jesus had traveled on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, only to disappear from them and to reappear back in the upper room with the disciples. And there Luke writes in that whole account, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. I think Jesus, far better than I or my teacher in that college class, could show us in the Old Testament, don't you see this was a picture of me? Don't you see that that was an illustration of the work I would do? And here Luke is giving it to us again that all of those Old Testament scriptures are a map that leads us to Jesus. So when your Old Testament Bible reading is there on the schedule, it could be days and weeks of 
laboring through those stories and that historical record and those names and places that aren't real familiar to us. But there should be a familiarity in the back of your mind, a familiarity that these things are actually billboards. They're, they're, they're pointing me in a direction. They're stirring my heart and longing for something more than I find in that Old Testament. They're steering us to Jesus. And so read through those Old Testament books, the history, the law, the prophets, and allow them to be painting a portrait that until you get to Matthew, you might not step back and finally recognize. In the Old Testament, you're just waiting for all those strokes to take their course, and then you get to the New Testament and you know, I know this person because it's brought to light fully for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we behold that glory is of the only begotten of the Father. It's full of grace and truth. I know that person. I've been looking for this. If the Old Testament leads us with this map to Jesus, then the New Testament introduces us to him. Therefore, number two, when you tell that gospel story, clarify that the gospel story is the story of Jesus. You see, in your witnessing, you may not be able to tell a lot of Old Testament stories in a conversation with someone. Or you may. They may ask you some like trick question about some Old Testament, you know, law or something. And you'll have the opportunity to unfold in summary that that Old Testament is unique and there's a lot we could talk about, but it was designed to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. Clarify that all the, the Bible is steering us to this person, the story of Jesus. I want us to see this clarification as it begins in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now there's a couple things here that make this a transition. One, he's saying, brothers, and talking to the crowd, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Well, the question we would ask is, what salvation did he talk about? He just ended with something about sandals. And you look back through the text and you're thinking, where, where was the salvation? That's point number one, that that Old Testament was all steering us to this big story of God rescuing us with this perfect priest, this perfect prophet, this perfect king. So in Paul's mind, everything he said about the Old Testament is this message of salvation. Now it's coming to clarity. Brothers, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. All right, so he's saying our leaders rejected what they knew, and in their rejection of the truth and their rejection of the Messiah, they actually fulfilled what God had predicted was going to happen. 
John summarized it quite simply. Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He's saying this salvation that was pictured and longed for in the Old Testament has been delivered to us by God. But I want you to note that we've moved from the language of the message of this salvation. We've moved from something to someone. Because in his transition, he now begins referencing him. So in 26, this salvation, because they did not recognize him, in verse 27, they condemned him. Verse 28, they executed him. They laid him in a tomb. Verse 29, God raised him from the dead. If you were writing an English paper for your freshman English class, you'd get some points taken off because your pronouns aren't in agreement here. You went from something, this message, to him. But theologically, it's perfectly legitimate. Because when Paul says God has brought this message of this salvation, this salvation, this gospel is a person. It's Jesus. God raised him from the dead. God raised our salvation from the dead because the Jewish leaders rejected God's salvation and put it on a cross and then in a tomb. But the tomb couldn't hold our salvation, couldn't hold the gospel, couldn't hold our Savior, Jesus. God raised him from the dead. We need to clarify that the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. You are a witness not to the loving family at Grace Bible Church, not to a denomination or a general system of beliefs. You are a witness to Jesus, what he has done and what he can do for sinners. So be clear. The good news is God's mercy in a person that accomplishes our salvation. The gospel is Jesus. Well, then Luke records another element of Paul's sermon that instructs us in telling the gospel story. Number three, when we speak of the good news of what God has done, we must eventually be clear to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus. And this is what Paul does. He starts with his Old Testament survey saying, you know what? That was pointing to something, and then he uses strong language. God has fulfilled this. He has brought this salvation to us in Jesus. And he labors there for a little bit, quoting the Psalms to make sure we understand the resurrection. David died in his generation. He did a good work, but he died. Jesus did his good work, and he died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. God raised him, and that's essential to our faith. Paul will give a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, to the significance of the resurrection to the legitimacy of our faith. But having unfolded that gospel in clarity, it's about the life and work of Jesus, his righteous life on our behalf, his atoning death on our behalf, his bodily resurrection on our behalf. 
substitutionary in every way. When we put our faith in Christ, it's for that righteousness that he lived, it's for that death that he died, and it's for that resurrection that he accomplished. That's all ours by faith in Jesus. But by faith in Jesus is significant in our witness. We must be helping people to understand that God requires of sinners turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Notice the way that Paul makes this sound like what it is. Good news. In our text, we see in verse 38, Paul's preaching still. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And now he quotes the prophet. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. First, he offers the hope of forgiveness. You see, repentance is a hopeful thing. The devil tries to tell us that repentance is a bad thing. You're going to look bad. People are going to know you're a wretch. But that's not how God views repentance. When we turn from sin, we find forgiveness of that sin. And so Paul emphasizes that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. You're going to encounter people this week who are slaves to sin. Some of them are proud and confident in their lifestyle. Others are toothless because of drug addiction and living on the streets. And it's pretty obvious that life isn't working out. But they're all the same. They're all in need of this forgiveness of sins that you can make known to them. And he says... And by this one, Jesus, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Again, Paul writing to the Romans says, Christ did what the law could not do in making us righteous. You would think it would work, right? List all these commands and say, just keep all these and you'll be righteous. Only to realize the problem rested in us, the law keepers. We couldn't do that. So what the law couldn't do in getting us to perfection and holiness to stand before God, Christ can do. That's Paul's point here. Christ frees you. Christ gives you Sabbath rest. You cease from your work to try to please God and you just rest in Christ who already has. So happy Sunday. Happy Lord's Day where we remember rest. Not in a legalistic way, but it's just the blessing that, oh yeah, I don't have to work day and night all the time to make sure that I please God. Christ has already done that and I just rest in him by faith. You are freed in Christ. And that's good news. So call sinners to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. 
Because what you're offering them is forgiveness of that sin and freedom in Christ. And note the good news that must not be rejected. This adds a little bit of weight to our speaking, uh, an urgency to our witness. Paul quotes Habakkuk, who warned the scoffers in his day that would not return to the Lord, and they seriously doubted Habakkuk's prophecy that the Lord would actually use a wicked nation like the Babylonians to bring judgment on God's people. So they scoffed at that. And so he quotes the prophet, look, you scoffers, be astounded when it actually happens and perish when it actually happens. You should have listened to the word of the Lord and repented of your sin, believing the threat of certain judgment. That's weighty. That's, that's pretty harsh preaching, really, to tell people you'd better believe in this Old Testament that points to Jesus, in this gospel message of Jesus, because it's true. You have to repent and believe, or indeed you'll face the judgment as the unbelievers have in the past. Don't reject the good news. Number four, when you tell the gospel story, anchor your confidence in God's truth about Jesus. Verses 42 to 49, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49 and 60, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I want us to see just just by way of observation, the repeated theme in these verses. Verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45, or, or verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Hopefully, I can chase away some of the lies of the devil about the fear of being a witness this week by reminding you that you have a script to read from. You're not making up answers on your own. You don't have to be a great apologist. You just have to have a confidence in the word of God. You can can take the easy out, in a sense, by saying, listen, 
I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You might add in your conversation to people, listen, I know it's hard to understand. It might sound intolerant to you or unfair. But I'm just telling you what the creator God has revealed to us in his word. I know you think my religion sounds arrogant and exclusive. I'm just telling you that Jesus said he is the way, he is the truth, and the life. And if you don't know Jesus, you don't have any three of those, now or ever. That's just what he says. You don't have, that's all you have to do. Rest your confidence in the word. If you're stumped by a question, you tell him, listen, God's word will have to handle your question. And you can read it. I can read it. I'll try to help you find an answer. But the word of God is true. And you steer him back to the word. Paul preaches the word. Now, he can do it very competently. And you should strive for explaining Bible ideas with competence and confidence. But if you're not there yet and you're getting there, then keep defaulting to what God has said. Give them a phrase. Give them a verse. Even if you don't remember the reference, just tell them this is what God says. Use the word in your witness. It's this two-edged sword as God describes it, designed to get into the hearts and minds of people and mess with them to lay them wide open. What they thought they knew they're going to question, what they thought they were confident of in arguing with you about religion, it's going to melt away. That's the power of the word. So you don't have to have all the answers. God does. But at least come to the scriptures and find a couple of key phrases. Things like we saw back there in verse 23. Everything God promised, he's fulfilled in sending Jesus. Anybody you talk to is probably going to know about Christmas. Tell them, you know, my Bible says that everything God promised throughout human history was fulfilled in Jesus, that day of Christmas. And you leave it with them. What, what can you do? You can't make them believe it. But you can anchor your confidence in the word, what God has said. Finally, verses 50 to 52. Find your joy in your witness of Jesus. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting ending to a story of that first full account of Paul's preaching the gospel. We want more of verse 44. The whole city was gathered to hear. But it kind of feels like a downer when a lot of them rejected and actually scorned the word and stirred up persecution against the teachers. And we see them leaving that town, shaking the dust off their feet as this gesture of condemnation. It's an indictment on this town. It's like saying, listen, I tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. Not in an arrogant way, but in, but in a confident way. 
They spoke the truth. They witnessed to who Jesus was. And if that's not being received, they're going to go on because they can shine this light in other places. Jesus did the same thing. At the very beginning, almost the first full day of his ministry, it goes late into the night healing people that were lined up. The next morning, the sun comes up and Peter's looking frantically for Jesus. And when he finally finds him, he says to Jesus, listen, they're already gathering. There's this crowd here. We've got to get going. Jesus says, no, we're moving on. There are other places that need to hear the gospel. Here, the disciples, because of the rejection and unbelief, are moving on. They're shaking the dust off their feet. Luke knows what that means. He wrote about it in his gospel of Luke, that Jesus told them when he sent them out in their kind of trial run, Go and proclaim what is true, and if they don't reject it, shake the dust off your feet and and announce that condemnation. This is the only way. If you don't believe this, there's nothing more I can do for you. I'm moving on. And that's what they did. And the text adds they were filled with joy. Filled with joy after the Jews incited riot against them and stirred up persecution and drove them out of the district. That's not an Uber ride being driven out of the district. That's being chased. That's being threatened with like real threats that all of wisdom says, you know what? I think it's best I get moving and pretty quickly. But they're filled with joy. So where is the joy in what appears to be a failure to win over the people to the gospel message? And the reality is the joy is found in obedience to the calling that's put on their lives. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And this text is saying, if you do that, you will find joy in your Christian life. That will be fulfilling. It'll be fulfilling this week to stand in the workplace or with a neighbor and say, yeah, I, I know what you mean. That's pretty, pretty crazy, whatever the conversation was about what's going on in the world. Ukraine, gender issues, whatever. Just for you to say, you know what? I'm just glad that I, can, I have this anchor in what is absolutely true in what God has told us in his word. They might say, wow, yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. And they might say, oh, you religious nuts. And both responses are there in the text. Some wanted to hear more and others were like, get out of town. You're crazy. But you will know in that moment a joy for having said, in that one brief moment, I took everyone's attention and said, look, there is a God that you're accountable to. There is a thing that is called truth, and it comes from God. There's joy in doing what God made us to do. And note that this text says they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's a new feeling so much as a reminder that this witnessing thing came with the promise that after the Spirit comes, you'll have this power to do what you're supposed to do, to witness. So in other words, the Holy Spirit-filled Christian who witnesses is the most joyful Christian you'll know. You're missing out on some element of joy. If not allowing that filling of the Spirit to be the power for you to be His witness wherever He's put you. 
Be what God has made you to be, a witness. By definition, a witness is successful when they give the report of what they know. The witness isn't responsible to convince the jury on a conclusion. That's someone else's job. They just spit out facts. They tell what they know, what they saw, what they've experienced. And that's what you're called to do this week. I just want you to know this text says that that's a, that's a good life. Is it going to make you feel under the spotlight a little bit sometimes in those conversations? Maybe so. And I have no guarantee how it's going to end, but you'll walk away, Lord willing, filled with joy, knowing that's the spirit-filled life, being a witness that God made me to be. We must know and tell this old, old story. And it's just not complicated. God is merciful to save sinners in Christ. Or boil it down to another song. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Somebody needs to hear that from you this week. Because they're racing in the opposite direction. They're on that broad way, the partying street that leads to ruin. They're ruining their lives, they're ruining their homes, their marriages. They need to hear Jesus saves from someone who was called to be a witness to that very truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for this example of how to tell a story. Thank you for helping us to see how the Bible is a story, a story about your glory seen in the salvation of sinners, accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the text that tells us this has always been your plan to save. And so would you save those among us who perhaps have never seen Jesus as their hope of heaven? Help our children to continue to grow in an understanding of your word May we believe it is able to make them wise to salvation. Use us to point them to Jesus, please. Use us as we go from this place. We're going to shop. We're going to work. We're going to eat out. We're going to do a lot this week. Should you grant us those days, may we do all those things with the thought in our minds that we are witnesses to those little ends of the earth. Lord, this, this series in Acts keeps going on, and we keep hearing about witnessing. We keep hearing about good news. At some point, this must resound in our hearts. Would you, by your Spirit, do that today so that something would be different about us this week? We would live boldly, in our righteous ways, and we would speak boldly of our righteous Savior. Do all this for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.